Just reading straight out of Genesis 16, 1 to 16. Okay, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no child, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hands against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord. Sorry, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lehi Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar born Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar born him Ishmael. Thanks, Bob. Just um, over that, we're going to try something a little bit different this morning. I just would like you to think about for a moment a question that that brings up for you, something in there that's a bit you're uncertain of or uh, an ethical or moral question that you might go, hang on, why has that happened? Think about that. And then the challenge will be to see if I answer it, and then if I don't, you can ask me at the end of the service uh, what I think about that. So do that, and I'll just grab my gear.
just come up with a question. You don't have to ask it out loud and be able to think of a question. Maybe a bit of an obscure story, but anyway, let's just pray that God will um, help us to, to come in here and understand this well. Our loving Father, we give you great thanks for your word, Lord. It speaks to us in so many ways. Uh, Lord, we just ask that in whatever way we need to hear it, uh, that you would speak to us through it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Does anyone really like paying attention to the names of roads? I know that as the highway went in and all the road names changed where the old highway was, there was lots of conjecture and talk and some delight and some outrage over what things got called. I love when a family has lived in one spot so long that the road is pretty much just the family name because that's how long they were there for. Does anyone have an interest in these kind of things? Maybe not. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Some of us do. The one that I think is really cool is a road called Shortcut Road. Now, that's the road that you want to be on, isn't it? I'm pretty sure if I've got it right, it's the road that comes from Bellingen and takes you south onto the Pacific Highway. And I think it just got acknowledged that people were forging this track, going through a bit of an industrial estate, that they called it Shortcut Road. And you kind of wonder at what point it just becomes the main road, you know? It's not really a shortcut if that's just the way that you've got to go. Now, we love to take shortcuts. I think that if we can do something uh, in a more efficient way, we're pretty well drawn to that, yeah? If we can save a bit of time, save a bit of money, save a bit of energy, then let me have it. And that's all well and good. But I actually think that this is far more embedded into our, our way of life than we actually realise, to the point where we actually call what are essentially shortcuts, something else. We don't quite acknowledge that they're shortcuts. We'll talk about in life and thinking about our life and thinking about the direction in our life and, and we'll start to use language like, that's what I really want, I've just got to make it happen for myself. I've just got to exert some energy. There's this thing that some people will talk about, the law of attraction, that if I just desire something enough and think about it enough that the laws of attraction out there, it's like it's a new agey kind of idea, but the laws of attraction will bring it to me and it can just be mine now. Now, last week we talked all about taking our lives into our own hands, didn't we? I think around us, this is kind of a bit of the water that we swim in for this kind of thing, but it's really shortcutting. And when it crosses over into a Christian life, I want to say to us this morning that it is a devastating thing. It's not how it is with God. It's not how it ought to be with God. Being a child of God actually means that. We're children. If I think about my own kids, I cook for them, not because I think I'm a better cook than them, but because they can't cook. I don't let them loose in there. I, I clean around the house, I do this, I, I care for them, Tara and I do that together, because they're kids, they're dependent. They can't shortcut their way to being a grown-up, can they? They've got to grow up, that's how they will get there. Children of God, if that's who we are, then we've got to remember this, and we've got to remember, see, we, we will never get to a point 
where we stop being children of God. Now, the trajectory that we're on, the Bible makes this really clear, is that we are being remade into the image of Christ. We're being remade, as the children of God, we're being remade into the image of Christ. And that is in its fullness when we're with God forever. But right now, we remain children. And so, there will be no shortcutting to get to that. Someone that I uh, read, I can't, I can't remember where I sourced this quote from, but it really struck me, is that we can't microwave maturity. You just can't do that, can you? You can't microwave maturity. Now, where are we? Well, we're, we're just our second week in our series proper, but our fourth week looking back at Genesis, looking at how God created a beautiful thing, but there was this downward spiral that came from sin to become this ugly thing, this ugliness in our world, this ugliness in people. And then a beautiful promise from God in the life of Abram to to bring restoration. Last week we talked all about how, how Abram, he acted out of fear and took things into his own hands. And following on from that, we're actually skipping over Verse, uh, chapters 13 and 14 and 15, which we've already looked a little bit at a few weeks ago. But throughout all of these passages, if you go through and read them carefully, and I would encourage you to do that, you see that Abraham is, is on a very slow learning curve to learn to trust God. To learn to trust God. To, to kind of undo the ways of thinking that were just part of his makeup for the time and place where he lived as a pagan and learning who this God was, learning that he could trust him and actually learning to put that trust into action. Abram is growing in trust. And chapter 15, which is just before this, I'll just show you a couple of verses from this to remind us. Graham spoke to us about this two weeks ago. In these verses... Abram, oh sorry, God says to Abram some pretty significant things that shows that he's made a covenant with him. This is kind of like a covenant ceremony that comes up. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And this is where we remember that the promise that God made among three things was that he would be a great nation. And, and for that to happen in their very old age, having always been infertile, he and Sarai would have to conceive a child that they might have any descendants. And so he's saying to God, how's this even going to work? I don't have any kids. And God speaks. Verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and your own blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, 
so your offspring shall be. So your offspring. Now that's a promise, isn't it? That's a big promise. You ever tried to count the stars? It's making its point, isn't it? And so as it goes on, we see that God performs a covenant ceremony where they split animals in half and walk down the middle and say, this is what we agree to. But the awesome thing was that for that to happen, God puts Abram to sleep. He lets him to sit on the sideline and God walks through by himself. God goes through in the form of a flame. And God's saying there, I will keep this. You're going to have to learn to trust me. But this covenant is not dependent on you. And so here we are, up to chapter 16. This is the context. And this is where we shift on to Abram and on to Sarai. And if you just think about what that would have been like for Abram, like that true, genuine mountaintop experience, as like, you know, that's how we express these kind of things. God there, count the stars, Abram. I'll put you into a sleep. I'll, I'll make the covenant on your behalf. And then... We have to read chapter 16. Now we go to the start of it and we read the first couple of verses again. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne no children. It's a problem, isn't it? And she was barren. Now I just want to start by saying that infertility has always been a painful thing. And it's a painful thing that still is part of our world today. And you can really empathize with Sarai. And and just think about the added layer for for Abram and Sarai that they're infertile. Like they would have been dealing with that emotionally all their life. And then added to that, they've got this God making promises that through their offspring, he's going to bless the world. Like pressure's on, hey. I don't know, when a young couple get married, they're like, when are you going to have kids? When are you going to have kids? That's enough. It's like silly pressure, isn't it? And then if you ever put your foot in it and say that to someone dealing with infertility, but then for the God of the universe to step in and say, like, what are they meant to make of that? And you can kind of empathize for a minute. But we've got to remember, how did God make the promise? He put Abram to sleep and sealed the deal and went through by himself. So if this is going to happen, it's not going to be dependent on them working out how it's got to happen because God is going to keep his side of it. And so she cooks up this plan. She thinks, I've got an Egyptian slave, Hagar. And she says to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave, Perhaps I can build a family through her. And we kind of just go, what the heck? Because that's pretty shocking. Like, if I heard of any of you suggesting that to deal with any kind of issue in your family, I'd be like, hang on, that's not cool. That's not how things should happen. But in their culture, in the, this is actually something that did happen. Okay? So it's a bit foreign to our, our modern sensibilities, but... In their culture, particularly when they were thinking about things like lineage and inheritance and stuff like that, okay, that's something that just happened, something that they did. So what Sarah is suggesting, on one hand, is kind of just going with the way that things get done in this culture. 
But I already said to us at the start, just because the way something happens in the culture, it doesn't mean that it's the right way for it to happen, is it? It doesn't mean that it's the correct thing. Like, I'm not going to start to sprout the new age idea of the law of attraction to you all and go and encourage you to, you know, go and live your best life and wish on the things. You see, that would be wrong of me to, to do that. Just because it's what's going on out there, it's what Oprah says, doesn't mean that's what God says. So, at the heart of this, she's back in that position where she now is not trusting. We picked on Abram last week, but this time it's Sarah's turn. And what is she doing? She's doing what Abram did. She's taking it into our own hands. Now, last week I said to you, how do you do that? How do you take things into your own hands instead of bring them to God in prayer? And I just want to pause here and say, how has that sat with you? Over the last week, thinking and, 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 and kind of actually looking at your life, how has that sat with you? How have you found yourself doing that? I keep listening. Because we've got good reason to grow through that, to grow beyond that. Now, I'll just point out here, it's actually quite ironic what's happening here because Abram actually does a very similar thing with her when he gives her away. And the problem, really, in what they have both done is that they're seeing people as commodities, people to be used for their own gain. Now, as we read on, we kind of, you know, we've got to think, what do we make of this? Because when you read on, you actually realise that she'd been waiting, they'd both been waiting 10 years, 10 years since that mountaintop experience with Abram. Now, it's all well and good to be excited about the promises of God to have some kind of spectacular experience, but 10 years and nothing's changed? 10 years and we're in the same situation. Well, in fact, we're actually older. We're actually a lot older. Like, I don't even want to dig into that. But they're expected to somehow produce a child at this very elderly, elderly age. Just think back 10 years in your own life. Go back 10 years in your mind. Like, and imagine waiting for something for that amount of time. This whole idea of waiting on God is, is big. It's, it should be a big part of our lives, of genuine Christian lives, waiting on God. But why should it be such a big part of our life? Because we have a God who is faithful and a God who is in control and a God who is sovereign and a God who has made promises. And when you mix all that together, it leaves you and I in a position where often we will be waiting on the Lord. And so we should. Now, I just picked up one little thing, just to, just to put this in some perspective. Just think, what is the fruit of the Spirit that God gives to believers to help them with this? Think three. Yell it out. 
You cannot wait on the Lord in your own strength. It is a gift of the Spirit. It is the work of the Spirit in you to produce the patience to persevere with God. But that's what we're called to do, to wait on the Lord. Because he's faithful and his promises are good. Anyhow, what goes on here? Well, Abram does the deed. He marries her, he sleeps with her, he impregnates her. He's using her, and we've got to ask, where is his trust? Where is his trust? I mean, at that point, he was the one up the mountain, not Sarai. He was the one that was, it's like Adam. Like Adam was the one that was there when God said, don't eat from the fruit. And then his wife is created, and then she's there in the garden saying, hey, come, son. You know, it's that failure, isn't it? It's not just the sins of commission, the things that you do, but the sins of omission, the things that you fail to do. Abram, step up, buddy. You've got to stop this. That's your responsibility. No, he goes along with it. He goes along with it. And of course, what do you think happens? Well, yes, she gets pregnant. Yes, he's going to have a son. But, that right, surprise, surprise, is now jealous. The woman that's had to deal with infertility all her life has watched her husband go and get another lady pregnant. What else was going to happen? How did she ever think it was going to be a good idea? Now, last week I said we will make things come in. We'll take things into our own hands when we are acting out of fear. But right alongside that, we will do the exact same thing when we are acting out of impatience. When you and I are acting out of impatience, we will take things into our own hands. And if we're going to learn anything from this is that that is a dumb idea because it will only, it will only create an ugly mess. What, 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 what has Abraham really got on his hands now? The wife to whom he was promised as her slave, mother a great nation as he would father it, has now got a, her slave woman with, expecting his child. Like, it's a mess. And then what happens in verse 5? Look there. Sarah said to, you, to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. The relationship between Sarai and Hagar is broken down. The relationship between Sarai and Abram is broken down. The relationships are going kaput and everyone loses. Everyone loses. When we take things into our own hands, there's a fair chance that everyone will lose. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Because... It's never out of God's hands. Now, in the midst of all this, at the end of verse 6, we learn that Sarai, having been abused or mistreated by Hagar, sorry, Hagar being abused or mistreated by Sarai, she flees. She's getting out of there. She's running away. And we actually, when you do the maths on, on where she's running and where she stops and have a look at the geography, you learn that she's running back to Egypt. She was an Egyptian slave. It's very likely that she's one of the slaves that was given to Abram in verse 12 
when he'd handed over Sarai as his wife. It's messed up, isn't it? But here she is, and she's going home. She's like, I'm getting away from these people. And as she's on her way back, God steps in. Look at verse 9 with me. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. What a call. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. Really? Go back to the one that despises you? To these people that have so badly wronged you? How on earth can God ask you to do that? And yet, he can because he's the God who is with these people. He's with them. And look at what God goes on to say. Look at verse 10. He, he showers the, her with promises. I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. It's, it's a parallel promise to what he said to Abram. He now is saying this to, to Hagar, the, the slave woman. And then in verse 10, he's talking about, oh sorry, then in verse 11, you see that in her being running scared, that God is in control. That God is in control of what's going on here. And then she tell, God tells her what she's going to call his son that she's going to have. You're now pregnant, you're going to give birth to the son, and you're going to call him Ishmael. And Ishmael's not just a random name, it means something. It means that God hears. Now she hasn't, you know, shouted out at God. She hasn't, all she's done is run away, but God is watching. God hears, and he must be hearing the pain that's in her heart. He's a good God. And he hears And you will call him Ishmael, and that will remind you that I've heard you, Hagar. I've heard the pain. I've heard what these people have put you through. As she's running away, God steps in. He makes a beautiful promise to her, showing that he's in control and reminds her that he hears. Now, it's not all roses. Just like it created a problem among the three of them when Abram got Hagar pregnant. God's promising here in verse 12 now that it's going to create an even bigger, longer-lasting problem. What's he say there of Ishmael? He will be a wild donkey of a man. That's a pretty cool description, isn't it? A wild donkey of a man. But it's not talking about his strength or his appearance, actually. It's actually worse than that. It's talking about preempting the hostility that's going to come from this multitude of people that will come now from Hagar's line. Just trace this back for a second. If this is Hagar's child, yes, but it's also Abram's child, then that means... For God to be faithful to his promises, well, he's promised to Abram that he would be a great nation. So really, God is being very consistent in his promise keeping, isn't he? But with all these people with a claim to Abram's seed, if you want to put it that way, he's saying here, hang on, this is not going to be all 
one big happy family. No, there is going to be hostility. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. They were impatient. They took it into their own hands. It created a mess in their family, but God's saying here, you don't even know the kind of mess that you've created here. It's going to be big. This is going to turn into nations, multiple nations that you live in hostility with. But before we move on and see how this plays out, we get a little insight into what Hagar says about this experience that she's had. It's there in verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. Now just think about that. Do we name God or does God name us? Pretty bold thing that she's doing here, but it's a pretty beautiful thing that she says. She says, you are the God who sees me, for I have now seen the one who sees me. Among all this, Hagar is overcome with the beauty of God's care and concern for her. She's just caught up in this, isn't she? She's just been caught up in their, in their impatience and their mistrust. And God, looking at all, acknowledges the one that is caught up. I just think that is an awesome picture of what it is to be shown mercy by God. To be shown the mercy of God. Like you've been shown mercy in Christ. In the gospel and probably in a multitude of ways that you can testify to. She is awestruck that God has seen her and and had compassion on her and, and come alongside her. It's a big thing. And then as it closes out, we get back to Abram and Sarai. And we've just got to finish up here thinking about what a problem they've got themselves into. See, in trying to shortcut, they've now literally caused this whole other line of descendants who will be at odds with Abram's family. In our household, we've, now our kids are just kind of you know, getting a bit older and we've got three now and it's, it's a handful. We've always got a tension at night time just after we've had dinner and when they're ready to go to bed. It's like, do we want to quickly get the kitchen and dinner cleaned up as quickly as we can so that when we've put them to bed, we can come back and just breathe and be in peace? Or do we put them in bed and then come back and have to deal with all that after? And the trade-off is this. We might quickly get into the kitchen and try to get everything cleaned up and everything right, but meanwhile, the kids start pulling stuff out and they're getting overtired and Luna's really good at getting a total second wind and she's like, was ready for bed, but then it's now going to be two hours until she goes to sleep and it completely backfires on us. But sometimes we're just so done at the end of the day that we're like, oh, let's just get it all cleaned up so that when they're asleep, we don't have to do anything and we can just go and sit on the couch. And, and we, we're tempted to, to just kind of go, you know, not trust the process, not trust what we know. 
and just kind of go for, think that we can control it. Now, I mean, that's a bit of a silly example, but like when you think about Abram and Sarah, like just, it's, it's out of foolishness what they've done, isn't it? It's out of foolishness. It's not just about trusting the process for them. It's trusting the one who is behind it. Now, the amazing thing about this is Sarai is obedient. Sarai hears the word of God and she trusts him. She goes back. She goes back there. She tells Abram all about it because he's the one that gives him the name. She must have. This is such a similar message to what we have in chapter 12. We're still thinking about how we need to learn to trust God. Week after week, we talk about growing and showing and going, but growing, growing, growing in Christ. Growing in Christ is in big part growing in trust of God, growing in trust of Jesus. And you know how that shows? It shows when you're not trying to take matters into your own hands. Now, in here, we see God's grace with them. He sends her back to them. He sends them back. He keeps faithful to his promise. And for us, God is gracious. We are, you know, as Christian believers, we are in that grace paradigm where, where God's grace continues. It continues to abound. And as you and I do make foolish choices and take things into our own hands and then wear the consequences of them, we're still within the grip of his grace. And that is the good news. But here's the thing. We don't want to just bounce around in that, do we? Growth is learning to trust God. We're on a trajectory at the same time. And so what we've heard today at adds to this is just to remind us that learning to trust and learning to not take things in our own hands really is going to involve a lot of patience. It's going to involve a lot of patience, a lot of waking, waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord. We've already said you can't microwave maturity. There's no shortcut to the holiness that you and I are moving toward. And so I want to give us this encouragement. No matter how your life seems at any given moment in time, whether it's the mountaintop that Abram was on or whether it's 10 years of wondering what's going on, At any point in time, God remains good. And he remains good to you and he remains in control. His promise in Christ to bring about your salvation, to bring you to glory, to be with you, to walk alongside you, to even grow you through the most harsh trials that you might face. He remains good and he remains in control. His faithfulness testifies to this. In the New Testament, this story is picked up in the book of Galatians. 
Let's really quickly go there. In the book of Galatians, in chapter 4, Paul makes a point of this. He says that there's people that are born according to the flesh, and he basically compares them to, to Hagar and Ishmael. People born just out of human desire, human mistrust of God. Chapter 4, verse 23 of Galatians says it like this. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. And so in the second part, as he makes an example of what eventually happens for for Sarai, as she does conceive a child and Isaac comes to be born, we're reminded there that she, he, he was born of a divine promise. And we're reminded that even there, God was faithful. And Paul is actually making a point about the Christian life. In Christ, we're under a promise. You and I are children, and that being children results from God's faithfulness. And in Christ, because it's from God, we, are, we have a freedom unlike if it were from our own keeping the covenant. At the end of the day, we're not like Ishmael, who existed because of a sinful shortcutting. But you and I are here because God has us here in his grace. The Galatians, when you look at the context of the way that Paul uses this account that we've been learning about today, they were about to shortcut They were about to adopt an Old Testament practice to somehow gain assurance that they were really Christian. We can be all about the shortcuts, wanting to speed things up. You see it in young Christians who are not married and they just want to be married and they're like, well, any bloke will do or any girl will do. And it's kind of like, well, you've got to trust. As we're growing up, as we're growing older, as we're becoming adults, we can be tempted to shortcut in so many areas of our life, thinking that we need to just keep up with what, you know, where we should be, what the world's telling us we need to have. Maybe as we're approaching retirement, we think, oh, if only that would happen a bit sooner and shortcutting our way there. The desire and the temptation to take things into our own hands is everywhere. Believing that God is in control and then yet finding ourselves trying to control. You'll notice it because you'll start to get busy doing those other things, trying to make those things happen. And you'll be so busy that you're barely praying. You're pressured by the circumstances that you find yourself in because you're trying to shortcut your way there and All of a sudden, you're pulling back from things and pulling out of things. Even if we're trying to conjure up and and produce the fruit of the Spirit in our own life without depending on the Spirit for it, working hard in our own strength to be loving and joyful and peaceful and kind, but shortcutting it by trying to do it in our own strength and not letting it actually be the work of God in our heart, We've actually got to be like Hagar at this point and remember that we are the ones that have been seen by God and God has set us free. We've got to remember that 
God is the one who hears. Like I said, last week, the ugly thing we uncovered was being driven by fear. But today, we've tackled that problem sister, being driven by impatience. And again, today, we're called to be driven instead by God's promises. His promises and his faithfulness. He's the one who sees. He's the one who hears. And he's the one who sets us free in Christ to be driven instead by his goodness. Let's pray. Father, you know us. You know what we're like. You know what we're like when we're faced with decisions. Lord, you know what we're like when impatience kind of jiggles around inside of us and we're tempted to shortcut our way to any number of things. Lord, let us be so defined and and captured by your gospel of grace that we really would have eyes fixed on you, a focus on you in our life. Lord, help us to be people that know your promises well. Lord, graciously give us your spirit, fill us with it daily that we might be producing all of its fruit and particularly as we think about this, the fruit of patience. And Father, in all that, grow us toward being people who clearly trust you. Lord, wherever this hits among your people here this morning, Lord, whatever circumstances are driving us toward acting out of fear or acting out of impatience, Lord, I ask that in your spirit you would assure us that you can be trusted and that you walk alongside us. Lord, and even if it's decades or a whole lifetime before we see your answer come, Lord, assure us that if you've promised it, that it indeed will come. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word, that it takes us to the heart of what we're like, Lord, in all our ugly sinfulness. And, Lord, that it reminds us again of the fruit of trusting you. So, Lord, build us up in that trust, we pray now. Amen.